There are many obstacles that can block the path to a successful software project. When you come across one, it helps to think like a seasoned hiker and follow the trail marked by blue blazes around the problem so that you can get back on course and keep moving forward. Welcome to Blue Blazes Podcast. I'm your host for the journey, Jay Tower, and I'm a partner and principal consultant at Trailhead Technology Partners. In this series, we talk with industry experts who share they are best tips for avoiding the pitfalls on the path to successful software projects. My guest on this episode of Blue Blazes is Cassandra Ferris. She's a community manager at Castin by Veeam and is dedicated to the human side of tech. Cassandra holds an MBA in organizational leadership, but her career has covered many areas, including training, community outreach, open source, marketing, hiring, mentoring, and employee engagement. As an international speaker, she specializes in topics like communication, inclusivity, career advancement, and mental health. Sandra also leads the STIR Scholarship for Women in Tech, connected to the STIR Trek Conference, and is a president emeritus of Dog Food Con. I really enjoyed our conversation about how to fail successfully, and I'm excited to share it with you. So let's jump in. Hey, Cassandra, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Very good, thank you. And uh, really excited to have you on the podcast today and talk about failing successfully. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics to talk about is, you know, a lot of us have been through a lot of changes and transitions the past few years. And so mm -hmm. talking about how to get through those hard times kind of in the nitty gritty day to day has become one of my you know, recent, I guess, passions or interests to discuss and share with people. Yeah, uh, I think it's a very timely topic. And also, I think it's one that's really important uh, for those that maybe not familiar with the terminology that we're using there, or who might think that, the, you know, failing successfully sounds counterintuitive. Uh, how would you define failing successfully? Um, so I like to joke, I was in pretty much day one or two of my career in tech, I was introduced to Agile. So for the dozen or so years I've been in this industry, everything has been viewed through this lens of agile for better or worse. And one of the things I liked about the concept was this whole concept of failing fast because everywhere else in my life, I used to work in sales, um, you know, in school, just so many areas in my life, it's not okay to fail. Like failure is just not an option. And so learning this process where it was okay to make mistakes, reflect on what went wrong, and then make corrections based on it in a professional setting was mind-blowing. Um, and then I later yeah. realized that it actually has a lot of application to personal life as well when you're going through tough times, you know, just how to get through big, big challenging things in, you know, smaller, more manageable doses. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in some ways, um, you know, failing is inevitable. Uh, when you have human endeavors. And so uh, you know, maybe this agile methodology and the idea of failing uh, being built into the process can you know, be a good influence on some of those other areas that don't think of failure as an option. Uh, because it's, software is really hard. And so failure is basically guaranteed. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, how do you build that into the process is a really important question, right? Yeah, yeah. And how do you course correct? I, I mean, you said that Steve Smith was talking a little bit about this, and he's probably far more informed than I am, but how do you course correct early on rather than, I don't know, I used to work in tech consulting, and we would periodically be called in to rescue a project that 
people mm -hmm. had been working on for a year, year and a half, and then mm -hmm. they get to the end and it's completely not the right thing. So we had to come in yeah. and, and fix it. But if they had been using a more agile method, they would have been able to, every few weeks or months or whatever, been able to reflect back and make sure that they were going in the right direction rather than you know, right. putting in a whole year worth of work that, and then uh, it not working out. I guess it's sort of that like shoot the moon idea, mm -hmm. right? Like if you're aiming at the moon, uh, you could be off by just the tiniest little fraction of a percent. And uh, by the time you get to the moon, you're way off, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and a lot of times that's so what it is. Mind, it's like little things. Yeah. Like yeah, it's often little, little things that they add up over time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in your mind, are there different kinds of failure or is it just different ways that people react to failure? I, I mean, I think I define failure as just something not succeeding, something not going the way that you wanted it to go once you've set, you know, you've set a goal to, to do something. And when you don't hit that goal, to me, that's a failure. And I think that failure itself is the same. But yeah, there are different ways of failure. Um, I guess maybe like different, I mean, obviously different types of failure, like is it personal, is it professional, is it something else? But I think failure itself is always the same. It's just the context that matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you think of a time when there's been a failure that's happened for you, uh, which like, as, as you said, by definition, just means that, you know, your expectations weren't met, right? That mm -hmm. you were able to then pivot into something successful. And what was, you know, what were the actions that you took that, that allowed that failure to become something good? Oh, goodness. I've had so many failures in my life because <laughs> I mean, that's part of why I give this talk. But uh -huh. I think um, I think one of the biggest failures I made um, was when I was transitioning out of technical recruiting into community management, which I do now. Um, I didn't necessarily do all the homework that I should have done on the position that I took that was supposed to be my transition into developer relations into community. And mm -hmm. In retrospect, I know that that wasn't a good time for me to be taking on a new position because of some other things that were going on in my life. I realized that I, um, you know, I was told that I would be doing one thing and the job wound up to be something else. And once I realized that, I started to try to make changes where I could. Uh, but that was, I think, one of the biggest failures was just this position where I was called in to do one thing and was completely wound up still being a recruiter, which I didn't want to do anymore. Um, but eventually, even though I got laid off from that position, it gave me a chance to at least get my feet wet into community work and also mm. to confirm that, yes, community was really my passion, not hiring. And so I think mm. that's anymore when I fail at something, anymore when something goes wrong, it sucks in the moment. But I think about, okay, well, at least it's, you know, a lesson learned or a good story or something like that. Sometimes I'm like, oh, it's just a good story. Um, I broke my foot last year and I was like, oh, well, at least it's a good story, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that was one of the biggest ones was just transitioning careers is hard. Um, yeah. And so it, it took me a minute to find my my groove, I think. I, I've seen other times where you might not call it failure, but you could say like bad things happening to a person. And the best thing that, that they seem to get out of it is the story, uh, to your point. The story that they can tell other people, there's some solidarity that happens there yeah. when other people are going through problems. There's uh, some, oh, I'm not alone or I'm not the only one. There's 
uh, lessons mm-hmm. that people can learn from your mistakes, right? What's that saying about uh, smart people learn from their mistakes and really smart people learn from other people's mistakes, right? So yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is at the worst, you've got a good story out of it that other people can <laughs> learn from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's part of why I talk about this stuff is, you know, we, in tech, there's a lot of pressure to be perfect. In tech, there's a lot of pressure to be this logical, rational, doesn't make mistakes being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't remember that there are humans besides behind technology and that humans do make mistakes. And so I've been trying to make mm-hmm. it okay um, to make those mistakes. What kind of prompted this whole topic is that you always hear these stories about, um, well, let's switch it to a software example. I usually use an Olympic example, but you always hear these stories where somebody has this project that's just completely on fire and they're supposed to come in and rescue the project. And then you hear about the project getting rescued. But not many people talk about what happens between project failing, falling apart, and project being rescued or remedied. So what I like to talk about mm-hmm. is kind of borrowing some of those agile concepts to get through those hard days one by one and to get through those hard times, whether it's personal or professional. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Just the beginning yeah, to that's end. a good point. Do you think that being willing to admit your own mistakes is an important part of failing successfully? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I like, I apologies for the dogs. Um, <laughs> no worries. It's one of the reasons I like doing like retrospectives is because even nowadays, so in my role, one of the things we do is we're very involved in technology conferences and we will always do a retro. I like to do a retro after the conference because no matter what you do, something went wrong. And I like having that environment where I can say, this is what went wrong and this is how we can maybe remedy it or make it better. Yeah. It seems like um, part of admitting your mistakes or or another way to maybe define admitting your mistakes is the term vulnerability, right? Uh, Yes. Basically letting other people see through that facade of everything is perfect. How important do you think that is when you're, you're, you're talking about, you know, a team trying to succeed together? I mean, I think, well, agile teams require vulnerability. They require people to feel psychologically safe. To me, I think vulnerability is important. I think it is fine to show even in a professional setting. I think that a lot of people mix up vulnerability and weakness. But by definition, weakness is something that exists. So for instance, I wear contacts because I can't see well. That's a weakness. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. choose to not see well. But when I become vulnerable, when I choose to share a failure, when I choose to do something that might be challenging or unsuccessful, I'm choosing to enter that vulnerable state. And the state of vulnerability means that you're being exposed to the possibility of being attacked. But the thing I always emphasize is it's due to the possibility. It doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. And I've found that by being vulnerable, by being open, by sharing my stories and my struggles, it's actually allowed me to connect with and help more people, um, as well as learn some lessons on my own, figure out my career, figure out how to be more successful at my projects. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, I'm six months into my current position at Cast and by Veeam. And so six months into a DevRel job is when a lot of the setup groundwork has been laid and you're starting to start executing on more things and seeing more results. Mm -hmm. And so right now I've been in this very reflective state about the first six months and where I'm moving forward. And it's nice to have the moment to sit and step back and reflect on all that. Yeah. 
how do you think, uh, you know, I'll say someone's listening to this conversation and they think like, oh, I, I can see already that vulnerability in our processes is what's missing for our team and that, you know, people don't feel safe and they aren't admitting their mistakes and we aren't moving, able to move forward and improve as a team together. How do you build that into your culture uh, if it's not there already? Um, it starts with your leaders. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of very good leaders who have allowed for this vulnerability. I think because we were doing so much through the lens of Agile, it was just baked in. Um, but the biggest thing, and this is something I ask about even when I'm interviewing for jobs, is, you know, is there room for experimentation? Is there room to make mistakes? And leaders need to make sure that their people know that it's okay to try something, um, to try something new, and that if it doesn't work, that they can mm -hmm. always correct it. I mean, obviously, there's times when so, it's not the right time to experiment, but sure. <laughs> There's uh, there's certain behaviors that a person could be taking that aren't just like, uh, hey, how could we all as a team do better? Um, you know, mm -hmm. if someone is uh, being difficult or, or a problem, that's just a person who needs to be fired or whatever, right? But yeah. a lot of problems on a team, it's the whole team could, could have helped, right? Like one mm -hmm. person might be the scapegoat, like because they, the they made a mistake initially, but then there's a whole team that can catch that problem so yeah. you know, what what do we do as a team to make sure that we're uh, we're holding each other up right yep and the best teams i've worked on have been the teams where it's been okay to ask for help and especially mm -hmm. um i used to manage a, t a community of open source developers and i was new to the devops and open source space at the time and so there was a lot for me to learn but it was okay for me to ask for help and so that made it easier for me to learn, easier for me to connect with my community and eventually implement some successful programs at that position. Um, and I'm doing the same thing as I'm, I'm actually learning Kubernetes myself and I am know about this much JavaScript. I'm not a programmer by trade. And so as I'm learning Kubernetes, I'm using a platform called Cube Campus. That's one of the things I manage. But as I'm learning it, I'm also seeing that it's okay where if I get stuck on something when I'm running through a lab or reading some content, that I can ask one of my team members and they'll explain it to me. Hmm. Seems like the when you're trying to create that culture of vulnerability, that this concept of blame can be a bit of a, a tricky one. Uh, I, you may, as you may or may not be aware, there's this command in in Git that's called blame which is basically about trying to figure out who changed something, um, mm -hmm. which I've always thought was kind of an unfortunate name for that command. Yeah, I mean, that it's is. kind of funny, right? But it's also kind of unfortunate because it assumes that once you figure out who changed that line of code, that that's the person you're going to blame for the mistake. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, at, at Trailhead, for example, we say we, are, you know, we rise and fall or succeed and fail as a team. Yeah, um, yeah, it's called so a development how, like, how team. Do you think of Right, exactly. How do you think about blame when it comes to working on a team like that? I don't, I think that if you have a culture or a team that where everybody is empowered to take personal responsibility and to be vulnerable and to admit that they make mistakes, you don't have as much of that blame culture. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. a big fan of blame games in general. I'm a big fan of, okay, so these things didn't go wrong. What did I do wrong? what else went wrong that I couldn't control, but I'm not necessarily looking for somebody to blame. It's just a matter of, mm -hmm. these are the other things that went wrong. Can they be corrected in the future? Sure. Yeah, that seems like a good way to approach it. So 
you're still maybe assigning blame, but it's more spread across the team than it is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like I've talked to people who work. Yeah. I mean, I've worked on, or I've talked to teams who, or talked to people who've worked on teams where it's been very blamey, like using even that blame command. And people mm-hmm. I know who've worked on those teams no longer work on those teams, uh, no longer <laughs> work at those companies. You know, you you leave that. It's not a good work environment. And mm-hmm. software professionals are in enough demand that you don't need to put up with that. Right. Yeah, that's a, a huge risk if you see that in your team if you see that culture in your team that you're going to lose probably first the best people on the team and then later you might lose the worst people but uh, you're at risk of losing everybody really yeah yeah and we all know that it's hard to build and maintain teams but yeah you're right i think you almost do lose because the best people are the ones who are probably more aware of that culture and that cultural problem and more willing to make a change or more able to make a change and leave and find something else yeah seems like a lot of engineers suffer from some form of perfectionism. How do you think that plays into this whole, you know, vulnerability and willingness to fail? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to it's this whole very logical black and white mindset that developers have. And I get it because mm-hmm. either the code does what it's supposed to or it's not. It's black and white. But mm-hmm. there's so much behind it that isn't. And I think I'm starting to think that the more senior in the experience sense, the more experienced software developers, I think that they become more senior, more experienced, the more that they are able to understand that, the more that they're able to understand that I don't have to be perfect all the time, that not everything is perfect. But when you start your career, especially if you're newer to software, you feel all this pressure to just be perfect and do everything right and never admit that you made a mistake. And then as you Sure. get your feet on the ground and get more experienced, you start to see other people making mistakes and you start to realize it's okay. I mean, I know per- I personally, as a speaker, as a community manager, have definitely taken that to heart myself. And, oh, it's okay to under to admit that I make mistakes because all of these other people I look up to have also made mistakes and talked about them and helped normalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Agile quite a few times in this conversation already, which I think makes a lot of sense because of the way that it helps you fail forward or you know fail quickly and move uh, on and learn from that. I think one of the maybe most important ways that it does that is the concept of a retrospective. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, could you maybe give a short summary of what that is and then talk a little bit about how you see that as being good or bad thing for failure? Yes. Um, and it is... To me, and the way I've learned how to do retrospectives, it's just a chance to for the team to sit down in a formal manner and think about what went wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen them done a couple different ways, but my favorite is the start, stop, continue. So what should we, what worked well? So we should continue doing it. What should we stop doing? And at the end of any project, a lot of times in my world, projects are either a talk I'm writing or a conference event that I'm putting together, like a learning event oh, what kind of things did I forget to do? What kind of things do I want to do for next time? So what do we start doing? Um, And you can do them online. You can do them in person. I usually just use kind of the sticky note method and ask people to do three of each thing, three stop, three start, three continues. We put them into clumps and then talk about them. And I used that really effectively when I was managing a previous open source community. We would do these periodic um, 
like office hour events. Um, and it was right during the pandemic. So things were starting to go online more. So we started experimenting with like online code jams and different streaming formats. And every so often we would sit and do a retrospective and we would take what we thought and also feedback we'd heard from the community. And over time that led to things like us changing the time that the town halls happened or keeping our wiki more up to date, just a lot of little things that we could do that we wouldn't have known about if we didn't retrospect. And the mm -hmm. nice thing about that was then it was easier for my contributors to know where to start, where to go, when they could get the support that they needed from our team as well. Yeah, it's such an important feedback loop in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, although, uh, otherwise, if you're just failing and then not doing something like a retrospective to do some analysis on why and what to change about it, then you're just failing, right? Not yep, failing yeah. successfully. I mean, yeah, and even now, so I manage three communities at Caston, and one of the biggest ones is Cube Campus um, Learning Platform, and it has a series of 17 labs or so, but we have some things that aren't necessarily covered in these labs, and so periodically we'll sit and we'll reflect on, okay, what is the community needing? What content do they want? What do they want to learn next? So. For instance, there's a lot of demand for more troubleshooting type work. So we're going to be putting together some troubleshooting labs. And it's just another gap we've identified that because we sat down to think about it now, we'll be able to fill it for our community. Mm -hmm. uh, as we've been talking about this, I've been thinking, you know, I think for most people, a failure is such a fear that it, it causes us to have some of those perfectionistic tendencies where we just avoid mm -hmm. starting something if we think we don't can't guarantee its success, uh, which probably means there's a lot of things we don't try, but you know, there's <laughs> maybe a small percentage of the population that is maybe less risk averse, uh, like the, the big risk takers among us. Mm -hmm. Do you see or are you familiar with any problems that can come up for somebody who is that type of a personality, maybe reading into this whole failing fast mentality at wrong and maybe taking different kinds of risks that are not a good idea or anything like that, that you could see being a, um, a pitfall? Um, I mean, I could see where, I mean, there's definitely room for people to, you know, fail completely, completely fall flat on their faces, completely miss the mark, completely be off base. That's going to happen. Um, I think that over time you gain the wisdom to say, okay, well, this is a thing that could fail and it's okay. But then you reach a point where, a failure becomes not okay. Like it's, it's too, mm -hmm. I don't know, like it's a scenario where you just, you should know better. <laughs> That's the only way mm -hmm. to put it. Like you should know better. You should know that yeah. this is going to be a spectacular failure. Don't bother wasting your time, energy, or resources on it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's, I don't know how you, I think that's something that comes with experience. Um, you know, you can learn a little bit about it. But I think it's something that comes more with experience, recognizing and it's also mm. part of, I guess, almost iterating on failure is, okay, so your first couple things were huge mistakes, but there's pieces of that that work. So what are those pieces of it? How do we implement those and mm -hmm. make the next failure maybe be less bad? Yeah. So I'm thinking of a couple of places I've worked over the years where they said, oh, we use agile methodology here, by which they meant we make it all up as we go along and there's no processes whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that is a problem. Um, but that's like, uh, you know, what's that old saying about uh, 
failing to plan is planning to fail or something like that. Like that's skipping all of the planning and analysis and feedback loops and all of that stuff, right? Yeah, you do see some of that. People take, people treat agile very dogmatically. And if you're not doing it by the scrum.org book, you're not doing it right. And then there are people who would do exactly that. They'll use it as an excuse to just do whatever, whenever with no plan and then say, oh, we're being agile. And it's like, no, agile is flexibility within a kind of a framework. <laughs> you know, there's still some rails there. There's still some, some guidelines. It's not like you're completely going rogue. Right, right. <laughs> and it seems to me like doing things like retros or measuring your success or having mm -hmm. conversations, open conversations about what went well and what didn't go well in general is that important piece if you don't have that you're not doing agile in a way that's going to actually help you succeed better next time right yep yep and measuring success can be tricky too both obviously in building software i think it's maybe a little bit easier because the software is created or it wasn't it works or it doesn't um, but measuring right. success in some of the other areas around we do like how do you measure if that meeting was product owner was successful how do you measure if that marketing initiative was successful that's a lot trickier um, to do yeah. but it still can be measured it's just it's harder for sure so let's say someone's listening to our conversation and um you know this is a maybe a new topic or it's putting new terms on something that they're familiar with but haven't thought about in these in these ways before where would somebody get started learning more about some of these topics any good resources that you can recommend? Um, I mean, I actually learned a lot of this stuff because I took a PSM class and because I worked at a company where um, we borrowed a lot of agile processes and how we ran the business. Um, so for instance, we had a daily standup. I had a Kanban board that I used to track my candidates when I recruited. Um, so I learned a lot of the stuff just through scrum.org, through meetups, through podcasts, um, shameless plug, my talk failing successfully is on YouTube and that I talk about, I do a little agile 101 and then I talk about how to apply it to rough times, both personal and professional as well. Um, but I think starting just at the initial source is the place to go. And then of mm -hmm. course, community, um, and the agile community is very large and very willing to share their knowledge. <laughs> yeah. You brought up, uh, your talk too, which I think brings up an important, uh, concept, which is. You know, bouncing some of your problems off of other people in the community. You know, so attending events, hearing what other people's lessons learned are, um, you know, attending mm -hmm. a talk like yours seems like it would be valuable. And then, you know, having conversations afterwards with other people who are doing the same things. And it seems like that's valuable it, too, right? Yeah, it wouldn't be a conversation with me without, if I didn't say I need a community. Like personally, nowadays, <laughs> if I was learning to look uh -huh. If I wanted to learn more about Agile, my first inclination would be to go on Twitter and LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm looking for resources to learn about X. I've actually done that a little mm -hmm. bit with my Kubernetes learning is, what are some good resources aside from the learning management platform that I manage? So I'm getting you know, yeah. other sources of content. But yeah, yeah. You, need a, you need a community. Slack is phenomenal. Actually, I'm in a bunch of different Slack groups too, where people can bounce mm -hmm. Any sorts of problems or challenges off that each other, as well as share kind of their learnings and their knowledge about. I'm sure there's agile slacks and everything. Uh, when it comes to vulnerability, personally or professionally, uh, it seems like I've heard you talk about Renee Brown on that topic, mm -hmm. and I know her name and vulnerability are almost synonymous these days. Uh, is that something you'd recommend? Yeah. So I refused to read Renee Brown for a while. 
Um, uh-huh. I give a talk on mental health and te- I give several talks on mental health and tech. And every time I would give my original one, I would talk about being vulnerable when you talk, when I talk about my struggles with anxiety, depression, and ADHD. And I was kind of forming my own opinions about this strength and this power that's found in vulnerability. And every time I would give that talk, somebody in the Q and A's would ask me if I'd read Brene Brown. And I was like, no, I haven't read it. I, I don't do a lot of it. Like it came off as a little self-helpy. Um, but then I started writing this failure talk and a friend of mine, it actually may have been Christina. Um, but a friend of mine said, no, this is actually, no, actually it's my therapist. That's who it was. But anyway, she said, no, it's actually based on some science. It's not just pure fluff for you. So I did read that book. Um, and really I thought the whole concept of vulnerability armor was fascinating and it ties back into what we're talking about, where one of the forms of vulnerability armor protection we put up is this air of perfection. And we all know nobody's perfect. We all know everybody just sees a fraction of everybody's life on social media or online. Um, But learning to kind of take away that illusion of perfection was something that I think I was kind of forced to do at some point in my life. Um, But then learning that that actually is a thing and how to do it in a way that didn't feel quite so dangerous was a really good lesson for me Mm -hmm. to learn. Um, I mean, it's gotten to the point where a lot of bad stuff happened to me in 2018. My life basically fell apart. But as a result of that, I started saying, all right, well, a bunch of stuff's already gone wrong. I'm just going to say yes to whatever opportunity comes along um, Mm -hmm. and try Mm -hmm. things that are challenging and uncomfortable. And it's been, it's been an amazing growth journey these past five years since I've started just saying yes to, it could be a small little opportunity, like to volunteer at something. It could be a big opportunity, like flying halfway across the world to give a talk, but it's, yeah. It's something that the more I put myself in uncomfortable situations, the more I almost enjoy it um, and mm-hmm. find strength in it and then find ways that I can support other people. Yeah, that makes sense. Those are the situations where you learn the most. You don't learn much mm-hmm. when you're doing the same thing you've done 20 times or 20,000 times, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, that's the main reason people leave jobs in tech is they're not learning. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely know that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we've talked a lot about this topic. I think it's interesting and we could continue talking about it a lot, but um, I'm interested also in a question that we ask all of our guests, which is what other topics are important when it comes to the theme of this podcast, which is helping to make software teams and software projects more successful. So anything Um, on your mind or any people on your mind that would be a good resource um, for another? Yeah, one of the first that came to mind, and it's because I work in one of my other communities is an open source um, Kubernetes uh, product community, basically. But mm-hmm. being part of those communities with open source, one of the things that you always run into and get challenged about is things like licensing and IP and how to even, what's okay to use an open source, what isn't. And it's one of those topics that's very interesting and very much outside of my wheelhouse. Um, but fortunately, we have a friend, Jeff Strauss, who speaks on, I think his talk's called, like, Trust Me, I'm a Lawyer. And it's about IP and licensing in open source. And I think that especially if you're using open source products, it's good to know the legalities. But he also talks a little bit about some of, like, the cultural norms and expectations mm-hmm. within an open source community. So um, I'd recommend him. Um, not sure if you've had Chris DeMars on yet, but DeMars is an amazing speaker on um, accessibility and front-end development. 
And then another person I would recommend is Jenna Charlton. They are within the testing world, but they okay. speak on the human side of, of testing and humanizing technology. Mm -hmm. And Jenna and I have had several meals and conversations together around this topic. And it's just interesting to hear their take on how, on how testing fits into failure, yeah. into success, into, you know, software being delivered basically. Well, those all sound great. And uh, I know a lot of those people you just mentioned, and they are all experts and, and really interesting uh, experts on those topics. So thank you. Free of charge. Yeah. I got three or uh, three <laughs> out of that one question. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but Sandra, I really appreciate your time and um, your expertise on this topic. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, and I uh, hope to have you back again sometime soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's the end of this Blue Blazes podcast. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this one with industry experts focused on how to make software projects more predictably successful, make sure to subscribe. Trailhead can be found online at trailheadtechnology.com, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.